This is the Monday, November 13, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we'll see a familiar face under a big cartwheel hat in the passenger seat of our time machine as we travel back to 1908 Los Angeles. That face belongs to Jennifer Kinchelow, here to chat about her second novel, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, an Anna Blanc Mystery. And, by the way, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk hits shelves on November 14th of 2017, which is the day after we're uploading this episode. You can catch our chat on her debut, The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, in the archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Find our guest online at jenniferkinchelow.com, at jenkinchelow on Twitter, or facebook.com, Slash, The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. That last name is spelled K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. Like myself, Jennifer Kinchelow first trained as a scientist, not as an author. Her day job is at the Denver Sheriff's Department Data Science Unit, studying the jails, and she worked as a research scientist at UCLA. But it's no mystery how she went from the pipette and Ph.D., to pen and paper. Her writing is excellent, earning the Chicago Gold Award for Mystery, the Mystery and Mayhem Award, and spots as a finalist for the McCavity Sue Fetter Historical Mystery Award, the Left Coast Crime Lefty Award for Best Historical Mystery Novel, and the Colorado Authors League Award for Genre Fiction. Okay, now that our time machine has dropped us off in the era of ostrich feather hats, Watch fobs and Pullman cars. Let's join Jennifer Kinchelow and dig into the mystery of The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. I'm joined via Skype by Jennifer Kinchelow, author of The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, an Anna Blanc mystery. Jen, welcome back to the History Author Show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I am glad to have you here. I looked forward to your second book from the moment I finished the last page of the first book, which is a good sign, right? <laughs> I asked I asked you when it would be out, and you said at that point the far distant date of November 2017. And I said, oh, I have to wait that long. I didn't want to make you feel bad, but I was 
I was almost ready to break into your house, basically, and get, <laughs> <laughs> get to the computer. Fine, give me more on a blanc. So this is just how, how passionate I felt about her and how much I wanted to read the second adventure. And when you think about the fact that I live around the turn of the century in my mind, 2017 <laughs> sounded incredibly far away. <laughs> you would not have wanted to read it in the early stages because the first drafts are awful, but they get much, much better. It happened once, if you remember, in Dallas when they shot JR, right? And the whole country right. was obsessed with what happened to the whole world, in fact. Even the Soviet Union, they used to want to be able to get bootleg copies of Dallas behind the Iron Curtain. And these two little old ladies broke into whatever the studio was and tried to steal the script so they could find out who shot JR. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm not as crazy as I think I sounded by saying I was ready to break into your house, but I was only kidding. <laughs> But this has been a ride for you, and I wanted to start off by recapping for the listeners this ride that Anna Blanc has taken you on as a first-time author since we first spoke back in 2015. Well, I won a contest, and through that got an agent, and then she told me to step down from the contest, and I did, and that was really scary, and then I got a contract with 7th Street Books, which is a really awesome, awesome publisher. And if you look at all the awards, you know, if you look at the Anthony Awards and the Agatha Awards and the Edgar Awards, you see a lot of 7th Street Book authors get nominated for awards and winning. So even though they're small publisher, they're new. But anyway, that was great. But it was a real emotional ride because I would get great reviews and I'd be excited and then I'd get bad review and I'd be feeling low. It was a whirlwind, lots of radio, lots of speaking engagements. And yeah, so first book was a lot of fun, but it's also exhausting. Well, it was exhausting to read because it is very fast paced and you feel Almost as if you are chasing after this character of yours, Anna Blanc, even the way that you write, you really convey that. You convey the speed. You convey how her thinking is kind of chaotic, and you feel like you race through it. And most of the time, regular listeners will know I say I'll stop a novel about three-quarters of the way through so that I don't give away the end. And it was very hard with The Woman in the Camp for Trunk, just as it was for The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, to stop because I really didn't feel like I was reading a novel. It was really a story that I wanted to follow and really is a credit to your writing. It's really good. And the fact that this is the second book and that you didn't rush it out. I joked about I want that second book right now. And a lot of authors will rush that second book. They'll have pressure from publishers that maybe aren't as understanding or aren't as concerned with quality. Maybe you're getting it right as it sounds like 7th Street is. So here, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk is that rare second book that even outdoes the first. It certainly builds upon it. It wasn't a book that I picked up and said, it's a pale imitation of the first. For instance, right here, I have The Alienist up on my shelf. And unfortunately, Caleb Carr rushed out that second book and it just wasn't as good. It just didn't match up to the first. How did you build off of what you learned writing The Secret Life of Anna Blanc to avoid that pitfall of authors who really can't capture lightning in a bottle a second time? You know, I think I was just so taken with some stories that I read in the newspaper from the 1908 newspaper and 1909 about real, real things that happened in Chinatown. And 
I just fascinated with Chinatown. I think that enthusiasm carried into the book and carried into the research because I had so much research to do, man. And I think when you're fascinated, you have a better chance that the reader will be fascinated. I think another thing with Anna Blanc is she started off so flawed. She's so self-absorbed. She's so naive. Um, She's so impulsive. She has so much room for growth that it's really easy to put together a character arc for her where she has, she has somewhere to go. So I think that made it interesting and easier too. And then also I've grown as a writer. I have all that practice from book one. Everybody always says the sophomore novel is your hardest because you don't know if you could do it again. Maybe you don't have as much time to write it, but I really felt invested in this one because I just felt there was a story to tell about Chinatown. You found it instead of just trying to redo the origin story. Origin stories are always pretty straightforward. You tell it, we see it in the superhero movies, and often it's hard to get that second one out of the gate because how do you top that first one? In fact, speaking of second efforts, The Wrath of Khan is regarded as the greatest Star Trek movie But it also poisoned a lot of the later ones because now every Star Trek film has to have that big villain. Ah. That wasn't the case in the original series. They had lots of things that they did. There was the exploration. We first meet your detective in The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. She is that rich, sheltered, pampered Gibson girl. She's a socialite with a rich, overbearing father. All things from an origin story. All things that made sense for you to introduce her to us that way. She had the threat of losing all of that and being cast out of society. This is a terrifying prospect for a single woman in 1908. That pressure, that crucible, keeping her character in that crucible, that hangs over every page. And it always adds to the tension as you meet her in each new chapter In this sequel, her Gilded Age cage has come crashing down around her. How did you meet the challenge of embracing that for the woman in the camphor trunk while still capturing that same tension that you could ratchet up steadily chapter to chapter? Well, I think there's tension from the whole fish out of water thing because now Anna is working as a police matron in the police station and she's living in a disgusting little apartment and she's just got a lot of tension from adapting and surviving in this new world where it seems like, can she really survive in this? And, and she does, but there's also a new threat. And that is the threat of a riot in Chinatown. So threat of violence that is hanging over the book. And, and it really is in Anna's hands to prevent it. And if she fails then people could die. And that is the new tension, I think, in book two. But also she's ha- she has this relationship with the police detective, Joe Singer, and it is not going well. And that's another source of tension in the book because she's lost her family and she's alone in the world and he's kind of what she had. And that's just kind of on the rocks. So I think that's another source of tension. I want to go to the first line here of the woman in the camphor trunk. I always try to pick out that first line. I look at it like your car aficionado, right? You 
get in and you sit in the seat and you try to see the things that are key to you, that first line is very much like that. If you're a car dealer, if you're selling cars and someone gets in the car and they're not comfortable or it doesn't draw them in, the seats aren't that great leather, all really weathered and you lay in it or really soft. And so that's what the first line is, eases you into the book. Your first line is... Anna Blanc was the most beautiful woman ever to barrel down Long Beach Strand with the severed head of a Chinese man. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm right into it. Even if I hadn't met her before in The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, that's pretty fascinating there. Does a lot of what I call heavy lifting, which I always look for in a first line in a novel. I like to ask authors how they settled on that first line, if it hit them like a flash out of the blue, or if it required a lot of months of rewrites to find where you were going to set your eyes on Anna again. Oh, you know, the image of... Anna running with the severed head of a Chinese man was kind of where the book came from. Like I had her in my mind running down a pier. You know, I was wondering who he was. Was he a fisherman? Because there was a Chinese fishing village. And I think it was sparked by something I read about the Chinese in LA. And that was where the entire book came from, from that image. So in a sense, I wrote the first line first. Hmm. Yeah. And and it used to say Chinaman. It used to say severed head of a Chinaman. And I was playing with how do I address racism and how am I going to do this? How am I going to handle terms like Chinaman in this book? So anyway, it was like the start of everything. It was the start of me wrestling with some of the racial issues that I had to address and better understand. And it was the start of the story, too. When you're writing as the narrator, you use that term, Chinese man. And even in that first line, if you want to study doing it, which is something you do in writing school, you even get in a little bit when you say ever to barrel down. It's not the way that we would say it here in 2017. So you get it a little bit where you use the sentence structure, you use all of your tools there, all that is at your disposal and your quiver as an author to tell us where we are and when we are. You know also, though, when to pull back, not use an archaic term that would be a distraction and might offend people. You have to do that throughout historical fiction when you're writing it. You have to decide when are you going to use those terms of the time? How are you going to cast those characters in such a light in the narrative where you're understanding that this is not something that you as the author are putting your fingers on? This is not coming out of your mouth. I made note throughout the book mentally where you're sure to handle that very carefully, showing that everyone has prejudices, everyone has ignorance at this time. A lot of these people that have come from China, they have tons of misconceptions about Americans. They have no idea to deal with, for instance, a white man like Joe Singer. They don't, they have plenty of things he says that they won't even talk to me. And he's, here he is, he's supposed to be working there in Chinatown. He's supposed to be protecting the folks. And so there's a lot of those things. And you use all that to add to the tension because you get that idea that people aren't even going to speak to the police, much less help them for various reasons. And that makes us all look at it in a way where that doesn't become a distraction, our our modern sensibility. We're not looking at anybody and saying that this is some kind of a fight between them, that we are losing 
favor for your characters, which we would if somebody uses language like that. You took great care with that, and I assume that that was something you thought when you dealt with Chinatown. You had to learn a lot about what the Chinese culture would have been like at the time. It, it was very different from today, for instance, where Chinese Americans are in every walk of life. Oh, yeah. I had so much to learn. So when I wrote the first book, I used the term Negro when I was writing as the narrator, and my copy editor wanted me to take it out. But it's always walking a fine line, because back then, that's what they would have said. And, you know, Martin Luther King would have said Negro, you know, but today it has a different connotation. So like you said, I did end up taking it out, because I didn't want anybody who was reading the book to feel bad you know, because I use that word, because this is a, I wouldn't say it's a feel good book exactly, but this book is (laughs) really to entertain. And, and so anyway, but with Chinaman, again, again, it's what people would have said, they would have said Chinaman, but there were other terms that they use. They use Mongolian, they use Chinese. So I tried to keep the most charged racial, what we would now consider a slur and put it in the mouth of characters, but never in the mouth of the narrator. And the narrator is, I use close third person. So the narrator sounds a lot like Anna. If I'm using racial slurs as the narrator, it really does, it reflects on me as the author and it reflects on my character too. Yeah, you have to be able to look at her and say, anybody could think that if they came from her super sheltered background and she doesn't think anything overt, she just doesn't, No, it's very childlike in a way. I was talking to one of my oldest friends. I was just his best man a few months ago in his wedding, and he happens to be Chinese-American. He's born here. He's American as I am. And I said, wow, I read this great book, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, which is not really a great way to start a conversation. But (laughs) it should be, though. Someday when it's a major motion picture, it'll be a good way to. But it sounds a little strange, right? But it's fun. And we were in Manhattan, so we're not too far away from the inspiration for the woman in the trunk to give people a little tease. But I said the way that she handled it, that people just have these beliefs at the time. And this is a melting pot. This is a very early era in America where people are being thrust together from all over like that plate lunch in Hawaii, where all these people at the plantations, all the plantation owners for picking pineapples, they say, this is the legend anyway, that they just brought people from all over because they didn't want to bring all Japanese, all Chinese, all Irish, all Germans, all anybody. They brought a little bit from everywhere so that they could never stage an uprising and they could never (laughs) organize into a union or anything. And so... They all put their food in their little signature dish, and they that's why they have the plate lunch that's all the various mixed things there in Hawaii. This is a legend. So if I'm if I'm wrong, somebody contact me. But that that's <laughs> what I heard once. And I said, That's America, the melting pot, the ideal. And that's the thing there. I was saying to my friend, I said, it is such a challenge. People are often looking to be offended when no offense is intended. It can really distract us. There are people who are going to read it who things do jump out at you, words do jump out at you. I mean, I noted there that you that how you use those terms and when they were saying it when, because if you're a sensitive person, you do try to be aware of those things, but it was never something where you said, oh gosh, she decided she was going to not use a plural pronoun or jam a he or she in there can often be really distracting mm-hmm. or using weird generic pronouns and stuff. And I found that that was something that you worked on and yet I didn't see all of your mechanics. I didn't see any training wheels on the narrative. 
I did so much research into racism and racism in particular experienced by the Chinese. Because the things that we're racist about the Chinese today are different than the things that were racist against the Chinese in 1908. You know, Chinese men were viewed as super sexual, that they could seduce white women and, you know, um, with their drugs. And they were viewed as just very hypersexual, which is very interesting. I have a friend, he wrote The Girl with the Ghost Eyes, which is a book about a Chinese American in San Francisco at the end of the 19th century. And he is like a scholar of Chinese culture. And he really helped me through a lot of this. Um, his name's Matthew Borison. But I had to learn and understand as best as I could what was going on, what people were thinking, what they were saying, and how it plays into how Chinese are experiencing prejudice today. But, you know, there's plenty of authors who use racial slurs James Elroy or Cormac McCarthy, who use racial slurs, they make it work, but I don't pretend to be in the same league with them. So I was very careful. And again, I don't want people who read my book to feel bad about mm. something that they read in the book. Well, and you are also as a first time writer, as a new writer now, now with your second book, people are going to pick that up and they're going to think it's you. They're going to hear you. Yeah. When I interviewed Crystal King for Feast of Sorrow, she said she had the F word, this slave, the man who sells him said that he was worth more if he sold him than if he, and he, so she used the F word there and she said half the people in the writer's group hated it, half loved it. Yeah. And so said the editor said, no, that should go. And that's the thing. I think it's easy to fall into that trap where you say, well, this is just me and I'm expressing myself. And uh, if you don't like it tough, you just didn't get it. But what for? Why, why die on that hill, so to speak, when it's not right. you anyway, find a way around it, use your talents and abilities and make it be something that anybody wants to read so that you're not getting in the way of your own story. You're not throwing up a roadblock where somebody sees a term and it jumps out at them as almost almost gratuitous. Like, you know, if you watch the Quentin Tarantino movies, um, I, I just don't watch them anymore because I say, what does this guy do? Start off with a blank sheet of paper with the N-word written 500 times and then put in a bunch <laughs> of, give me a break. You, there's no need sure. for it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You make sure that you're conscious of all those things. And I could see all those wheels here as I read through the woman in the camphor trunk. You're conscious of it all. So I see why it took you a year and a half for two years, even though I was complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. It took me a long time. I mean, maybe even longer than that, because I think I already started writing this book before I signed the contract to sell the first book. So yes, and a lot of it was research about racism and trying to understand. The best historical fiction is always based on those kinds of things. It's based on research and real facts and getting into the head, not making people cardboard cutouts or stereotypes. Those are real stories that you base this on. You hinted at them a little before. I mentioned the real woman in, in the camphor trunk. So it won't surprise listeners that we traded those stories before I read the book. She turned up, however, in Hell's Kitchen in New York. When I walked by, which I do every now and then, the place where the building would have been, it's a firehouse now. How did you find that story? And how did you move the woman in the trunk? How did you ship it? FedEx? What? How did you get her all the way out to L.A.? <laughs> <laughs> well, so the woman's name was Elsie Siegel, and she was 19. 
And she was the granddaughter of a Civil War general. She was a missionary, worked in Chinatown, and she was found dead in this trunk in the apartment of Leon Ling, who was her lover, and he had fled. So it was all over the newspapers in Los Angeles, even though it happened in New York. It was all over the newspapers everywhere in the country. It was a big, big deal. Um, There was an international manhunt going on for Leon Ling, and it really set off a backlash against the Chinese. And all over the country, Chinese men were being thrown in jail, mistaken identity, are you Leon Ling? And there was a big sort of backlash against white women being missionaries being involved in Chinatown, you know, keep the white women away from those those dangerous Chinese men. So I found this book, uh, it was, I think it was called the Chinatown trunk murders. And it's a book people would read in at the university in Asian studies, you know, but it talked about the implications of this murder and the implications of the mixed race couple and the implications for white women and for the Chinese even more, obviously. So I was fascinated by it and I wanted to write about it. And so, because I write historical fiction. I just moved him to LA, but it was in 1909. So uh, my story set in 1908 and I changed some of the details and I, and I'm not going to tell you all about, No, there's so much <laughs> in the fictional book that came from the real story that I would actually giving stuff away. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk more about it. We lose so many New Yorkers to LA and you would think that a woman locked in a trunk wouldn't be able to fly all the way out to the West coast, but <laughs> Somehow. And I had heard of that story before, by the way. And if folks follow you at Jen Kinchelow on Twitter or my account at History Dean, I've tweeted out a picture of that old tenement. And it's pretty cool. And there's some details in there that if you look closely after you read the woman in the camphor trunk, you say, well, that's cool. She folded that little bit of detail there into it. Some cool things that are in that picture. And you think about how they had these crimes that this is really the pita here of the tabloid papers of all those dailies competing with each other. And so that would have been very sensational. People would be hearing about it everywhere and every police department is looking for them. It's really an exciting thing for you to bring back, a sensationalized thing for you to bring back. Oh, I hope people read up on it, you know, after they read the book and about the manhunt and about all of the things that it brought up, because it was an important thing to learn from and to better understand the prejudice that the Chinese felt. Um, They really were the lowest, on the lowest rung of the ladder in Los Angeles, as far as the pecking order. You know, I don't even think it was illegal. I read somewhere that it wasn't even noted to kill Chinese men, like like in the 19th century in LA. They were just expendable. And of course, there was the big massacre in LA where they hung, it depends on which account you read, but they strung up 19 Chinese men in a mass lynching in Los Angeles because they were having a Tong war over a stolen woman, a gunfight broke out and a white man was shot, a white rancher was shot and people responded by rioting and they just took Chinatown apart and rape, pillage, burn, you know, and all those Chinese American men were killed. So, and no one went to jail for that. (laughs) You know, nobody, nobody ended up convicted in those murders. 
it's a time of corruption for the LAPD for sure. And that comes across here in the book, which also isolates your characters that much more. Well done. This relationship that you hinted at there between Joe Singer, who is the LAPD commissioner's son, and Anna Blanc. That was something that we talked about a little bit in the first book, or in the first time we talked about the secret life of Anna Blanc. How did you go about developing their relationship when things that we would consider today in a modern relationship were just unheard of then. How did you deal with making their relationship relatable when it's so chaste compared to today's? Yeah. Well, our ancestors were surprisingly human. And I think this era was people were reacting against the Victorian mores. So they were a little more free with their affection women were for the first time or increasingly going into the workforce so that they weren't always chaperoned. Women were going to college. College women had the reputation of being loose and almost a quarter of all births were conceived out of wedlock. And if you think of that, that's not a quarter of all women, that's a quarter of all births. So, you know, things were going on People were attracted to each other. People were involved with each other. And then there was this other side of it. I read this handbook for brides. A lot of women would go into marriage and not know anything about sex, which, so there was, there was that still going on. And then there was this other thing going on, I think more with the working class. So the feelings were the same and people were the same. It's just their situations were different. So I try to focus on that so that people can connect with Anna and her feelings towards Joe. My guest is Jennifer Kinchelo, author of The Secret Life of Anna Blanc and the sequel, which, despite what she said, is my feel-good book of the year, <laughs> The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, an Anna Blanc Mystery. You can find our guest online at jenniferkinchelo.com, at Jen Kinchelo on Twitter, and facebook.com slash The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. Her last name is spelled K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. Cynthia Swanson, New York Times bestselling author of The Bookseller and The Glass Forest, writes of book two, quote, Readers will race through the pages to follow Anna and her dedicated colleague, and sometimes beau, Detective Joe Singer as they work to discover who murdered a white missionary and left her body in a trunk in a Chinatown apartment. Current fans, as well as those new to Anna's plucky spirit and quick wits, will find her latest adventure a delight, unquote. Jen, we don't want to give away too much of the novel. I always try to leave a little bit to the imagination as much as a third of the book, but this one as Cynthia Swanson said, you can't help it. You just have to race through it right with Anna. She's she's not going to let you close the book on her until you're done. <laughs> so <laughs> you've chosen a passage from The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. So set that up for us and have at it. So this is the beginning of book two. So there's really not that much setup because the books do stand alone, although it is a sequel. And if you're interested in Anna's origin story, then that would be in book one. So I'll just read it. Los Angeles, California, 1908. Anna Blanc was the most beautiful woman ever to barrel down Long Beach Strand with the severed head of a Chinese man. The tin pail that contained the head banged painfully against her shins as she flew, 
The sand churned beneath her shoes, grinding the silk from her expensive Lewis heels. The wind fought against her unwieldy ostrich plume hat, bending the feathers. Regrettably, she had not dressed for a hunt that morning. She had not planned to be hunted. Luckily, she was young. Anna jumped over a pile of seaweed, stirring a cloud of sandflies. She unpinned her hat with one hand and let it sail, gripping the heavy pails so tightly her knuckles whitened. The pail swung and bounced erratically, frustrating her strides. It stank like old fish, rotting pork, and things so vile she could not name them. She gagged, panted, and gagged again. In the distance, a roller coaster roared. She heard a shout behind her and looked back. A detective in a gray suit burst from the shadows of the pier at a dead run. Though heartless and incompetent, he ran like an Olympian. He was gaining quickly. Anna ran harder, her waist cramping, her arms aching, her skirts thrashing about her legs like sea foam. She was beginning to think she had made a mistake stealing the severed head from the scene of a crime. But without his head, Mr. Yao would never get justice. She veered away from the water towards the bathhouse and the crowd at the pike, aware of heavy, hostile panting close behind her. Music exploded from a bandstand. A hard shove to her back launched her forward, and she fell, jarring her chin on the ground and biting her tongue. She tasted hot, rusty blood. The bucket's lid popped off, and the head rolled across the sand like a bowling ball. Anna crawled after it, grasping for the breath that had been knocked clean out of her. She felt the detective's brutal hands grab her boot and tug so hard she feared her hip would separate. With a distinctly unladylike hiss, she kicked. Her boot connected with his man parts, and he dropped to the sand, howling. Anna gracefully regained her feet, scooped the head up with the bucket, replaced the lid, and bolted for the crowd. You write so well when you're writing her in action, and so much of the book is action, that I just love that. I'm smiling listening to it because it's well-paced. I don't know if you read, if you're one of those writers that likes to read something out loud after you've written it, but you almost could become out of breath just reading it out loud like that. The short clipped sentences, the speed of the cadence, you are writing it also from her point of view. So you take us inside her mind, which is pretty chaotic itself. I jotted down a few words about it, a few notes to describe her thinking clipped erratic like a squirrel's inner monologue was one I was fond of. <laughs> it's it's not that it's not fun, It's the, but it's not that farcical romp that the first one was a little bit when she's just so young. This is a different woman here. This is a woman almost waking up to a new world, half awake now. She's aware of much more that's going on out there. We chatted about the first novel. We now have a more mature character. We now have a more mature author with us here, more experienced having written the first one. How did you go about getting inside of her head and then developing that slightly different, a little bit more cynical voice of somebody who has seen more of the world now and yet is still so determined to be the sort of woman that is just going to grab a severed head if she thinks she might know who it belongs to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anna gets in my head. I don't get in Anna's head. She, She's just a living person somewhere in the ether that comes to me and I know exactly what she'd do. I know exactly what she'd say. And I've heard other authors say that too, but she really just sprang from my fingertips onto the keyboard 
I channeled her. <laughs> that she really does come across as a real person. It's really an accomplishment. And if people like it, they think they're a little cynical about fiction. Maybe I know it's not everybody's cup of tea because they just feel it's not real. She's very three-dimensional. I mean, she's unique. The fact that she's not well-rounded as a person is part of what makes her a real person. She's not really aware of a lot of things. She's super naive when it comes to things like sex, like courting. She's self-absorbed, you could say, easily self-centered, certainly, but it's part of her upbringing, so you're still on her side. And that's a that's a really nice shade of a person. We've all met somebody and said, okay, if this person is a jerk, some people do know better, but some people are just never raised that way, or they just didn't have that experience. They just don't know. And in her own way, she is as much that fish out of water, as much a stranger in a strange land, as all of these new Tong girls, all the new Chinese immigrants that are coming there into LA's Chinatown and not knowing the way. She has just as many myths, I think, about men as the Anglos and the Chinese men and women do about each other. She's yeah. really on an island by herself. She is, and and she relates to the Chinese women, you know, because they're oppressed and she's oppressed. And, you know, she she's able to connect with them in her own weird, naive, self-absorbed way. And she almost thinks, hey, she's calling people slavery. She's calling them right out. She's yelling at these men who would shoot her and dump her her head in a bucket at a moment's notice. But she's just going to speak out and say, because of those experiences in the first book, when she realizes how much of her life has just been stolen away from her by this overbearing father, by the mores of the time. And even for him, yeah. he's has his own limitations. So it's not as if he's some cardboard cutout Cruella DeVille who is doing these terrible things for no reason. He has his own reasons, as you give them to him in The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, that pushes her then to have that life that is kept secret that comes exploding uh, in the climax of the book, which we also won't give away for folks <laughs> since this is a mystery. But <laughs> since it is a mystery, though, I want to cite one clue that I found in your acknowledgments. You list your inspirations. You thank an Elizabeth Bonser, the name of a character we meet through the woman in the camp for trunk. I wondered who she is and how she earned that honored place in your acknowledgments. Oh, yes. Okay. So way back when I, I, you know, I wrote this book. I was, I didn't know any other authors. I just kind of wrote this book and I didn't know what to do with it. So I entered it in a contest and people were getting eliminated from the contest and my book wasn't being eliminated. And they posted the first chapter of my book on a website. And then uh, one day I was, I was getting these LinkedIn invitations from an Elizabeth Bonser and I didn't know who she was. So I was ignoring them. And finally I'm like, I'll be nice. I'm going to accept her LinkedIn invitation. Well, she was with the Blair partnership, which is an agency in London. And she was interested in seeing the whole book and maybe being my agent and the Blair partnership, they handled JK Rowling. And so it was like, I couldn't sleep. I was just so <laughs> amazed. So Liz Bonser kind of like discovered my writing and she's the one that her and Zoe King, who's my, she was actually my that my agent's assistant at the time. And later she became my agent and Zoe King is now my agent, but they're both amazing. Blair Partnership's amazing. 
But Liz, she would read my manuscript and she'd give me comments on it. And then I would rewrite it. And then we sent it off and got book contracts. So I'm just grateful to her for reaching out to me, like finding me on LinkedIn, you know, because she didn't have my contact information. She went out of her way to find me. And that's pretty miraculous. That's really nice. It's so inspiring, too, that if you write something good, good things will happen. Because I think a lot of times people are just afraid to start because there are so many people who tell you how not to do things. I mean, nobody needs help being discouraged, but there's plenty <laughs> of people who haven't done it who will tell you, oh, you can't. Why are you going to try? And I know from knowing you that you're always encouraging other people now, even at this early stage of this career as a writer, you're always encouraging. You're always saying you can do it. And you have to be prepared. If you do it, somebody will see it, especially now. It's not as if we're in the Laura Ingram's Wilder days where you're going to be out there in the prairie and nobody's going to maybe someday a fancy writer man will pass through town with his printing press or his <laughs> typewriter. You know, you hope maybe Sam Clemens gets off the 12 o'clock stagecoach from San Francisco. <laughs> you, have, you have opportunities here to reach somebody all the way on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and impress them with your work. And then they have something like LinkedIn where they can come find you. So have a presence out there is the lesson of your experience and people will track you down. Yeah. If I didn't have a LinkedIn account, I don't know where I'd be today. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, yes. I have a final question for you, even though I apparently can't get this question out. This is my <laughs> third try, everybody, because I my subconscious does not want to wrap up this interview because I enjoyed this book so much and I enjoy speaking with this author so much. But it's simply that you've written two books now with Anna Blanc. Your tank, by my way of thinking, is nowhere near empty. Will there be a third book with Anna Blanc, a third Anna Blanc mystery? And if so, can you give us a sneak peek at where that third book might take your lady detective. Oh, uh, yes. Um, this book is the third book. I have a contract for the third book and it's due pretty soon and I'm scrambling to write it. Um, and it is inspired by a newspaper article about Fanny Bixby. She was a police matron and the daughter of one of the richest men in California. It's inspired by something that really happened in her life. But right now, Anna is on a train to Yuma and she's facing some, the first book I dealt a lot with sexism and the second book I dealt a lot with racism. And this book, the third book has some family themes in it, I would say. So, uh, but it's, it's exploring new areas of LA. I've got a scene in um, the Azusa Revival Church, which was the birthplace of the Pentecostal movement. So that was very interesting. And it was just happened right then, you know, in that year. What was interesting to me about that church is that it was interracial. There were whites and blacks and Chinese and Japanese, and it was led by an African-American man. And so there's a little bit of more LA culture, like exploring little parts of LA history that people may not know about. Well, I'm certainly going to look forward to it. I, you've teased us just enough there, but I think most folks maybe who haven't read the book, hey, you can go back and read the first book. Jennifer Kinchelow, author of this book too, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. 
I looked forward to this book from the moment I finished The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. So we end where I began saying I couldn't wait for this book. I can't wait now for the third book. I'm really sincere in telling you how much I enjoyed it and how I look forward to your writing. And what a pleasure it's been to get to know you outside of talking over the show, talking about the books. I'm really pleased to find her the same young woman, Anna, only better in this second book. And I look forward to following her into book three. In the meantime, best of luck with both Anna Blanc mysteries. And I say again, my feel good novel of 2017. Oh, thank you, Dean. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you and pleasure to have Anna here with us. I could hear her speaking through you. So <laughs> it's a really great and inspiring story. <laughs> Again, the book is The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, an Anna Blanc mystery. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have to give a big bucket of thanks to Jennifer Kinchelow for joining us a second time and for weaving another wonderful mystery with Anna Blanc. You can find our guest online at jenniferkinchelow.com at Jen Kinchelow on Twitter and Facebook.com slash The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. That last name is spelled K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this 1908 installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same on the east. Sign West, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.